Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Minter, your co-host, along with our guest host, uh, Helen Helix DeSanto. Today's topic, from resistance to revolution, escaping the tyranny of the political pendulum, a conversation between Beth Green and Helen Helix. Many people are angry about the policies of the new U.S. government, and the word resistance is on many people's tongues. But is resistance enough? How would this resistance be different from the right-wing resistance to President Obama when the other side felt excluded and disenfranchised, which in, turn, which in turn helped swing the pendulum to Trump? How can we move past divisive politics where the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth? Problems don't get resolved, and a lot of folks get hurt. Is it possible to free ourselves from the tyranny of the pendulum, go beyond resistance, and achieve a revolutionary shift in the foundation of society. So stay tuned for co-hosts Beth Green and James Minner talk with Helen Helix, co-director of outreach of the interrevolution.org, and learn more about what some people are doing to overcome the tyranny of the pendulum swing and to bring about the historic changes we need for a better world. So call in if you can. Hi. Uh, I guess you're calling on me, James. Well, welcome, everybody, to Interrevolutionary Radio. I'm so glad to see you today, and I'm glad that Helen is joining us, too, because she makes our lives much easier. Helen, are you there? I am, and I'm so happy to be here with you and James. Oh, just, yeah, I know why you're happy, because you're resting. You're not running around doing physical work. That's so, correct. She's been busy, 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 uh, helping support her daughter, too, who's doing a fabulous job putting together a succulent show uh, here in, San, the, uh, in the San Diego area. So uh, any excuse to sit down and put her feet up, I think is going to be welcome. <laughs> You have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do kind of have an idea because James and I have just moved. Just moved, which is even more daunting. I I can't even imagine. Uh, Yeah, well, you see, it's it's wonderful. We love it. We've moved from southern Oregon to central Oregon. We had to go where it rains more, it's more cloudy, and it's colder. You know, we've had rain, sleet, snow, hail, and a little sunshine on the same day. We are just, you know, if if it doesn't rain, we say, oh, my God, it's not raining. But it's just beautiful here. So I feel very happy to be in our new home and to feel the energy. We're, we're on a river, and I'm looking at the river, and I'm, it's trying to wake me up. So that's what we're all trying to do right now is to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> And we're having a gorgeous day today. We are. The sun is out. The snow is melting. I mean, you know, it's going to be spring very soon. So, uh, you you know, spring, that's kind of a a revolutionary time, isn't it? It's like you go one day, you go to sleep, and there's nothing there. And then the next day you wake up and all this green stuff is there. And it's but it's been on the way for a long time. It, it, it's been kind of like that, I think, in our nation of people getting very activated. But the people are being activated on all kinds of sides. So um, why don't we have you, Helen, uh, start out with asking me some questions. Pretend like you're interviewing me today. Okay. Well, the first question that comes to my mind is a segue from James's lovely introduction to the show, which is about how do we stop that ping pong that and, and include the people who felt disenfranchised when Obama was president without 
swinging the other way and now everyone else is disenfranchised because Trump is president. How do we get out of that? Yeah, well, that that is such an important and uh, very challenging uh, issue for now. And I, one which I'm afraid very few people are actually addressing. What I'm seeing is more resist, resist, resist. And I understand it. I totally understand what people are trying to resist. But it also feels like there's a lot of energy that we're getting from resistance. It, it kind of reminds me of the two-year-old who says no, all of a sudden discovers its power. And yes. I, I think we do, we, de- we need to have power. We need to feel our power. I'm thrilled to see people who are fighting back. But on the other hand, what we're, what we're missing in the process is that we are being just as partisan and blinded as the other side. Uh, and then the other side, I would say the same to you. I mean, you're, you know, you're like, oh, yay, now Trump is in power. Now we're going to get things going. It's going to get done. And you're completely ignoring the pain, the suffering um, for the people on the other side. And how do we stop that is we have to stop actually enjoying the process of fighting each other. That is such an amazing statement right there. We have to stop enjoying the process of fighting each other. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I know you advocate, Beth, which I think is so important to integrate into the conversation now, is that this, whatever you're going to say today and whatever our discussion about, you know, basically revolutionizing the revolution yeah. Is is just as applicable with our husbands and our children as it is with our political quote unquote enemies, uh, because we need to stop enjoying fighting. Oh my God, Helen, you have just said a mouth and a half full, and I would actually like to start with that whole issue of our inner beings and what does revolution look like for ourselves. This morning, uh, when I was thinking about our show today, and I thought, well, you know, what is the difference between resistance and revolution, right? Resistance is about, no, I don't like what you're doing. And and revolution is about, well, let's do it differently. And that is is extremely different. I love that distinction, the difference between resistance and revolution. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, it's, you know, it's the power. So many of us stop with the power of resistance and we just stay there. Yes. Again, whether it's in a marriage or it's in the entire earth, you know, in all of humanity, you know, in whatever the macro or micro level, so many people stop with resistance and never make it to the revolution. Well, that is so true. In fact, it it makes me think uh, about being a child. You know, it's like the the kid who says no really feels like uh, she or he is doing something. You know, it's like no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna, even if I want to. I'm not gonna. I'm just not gonna. And uh, again, I'm not saying that there aren't terrible things happening, but there's always terrible things happening, right? But but our reaction of I'm not gonna, it, it, it kind of re-stimulates that feeling of when we're two and we start discovering our power. And our power is the power of the no. I, you know, my, my parents want me to eat vegetables now. Uh, and <laughs> my, my mother wants me to <laughs> stop hitting my baby brother now. now. 
and my, uh, you know, uh, my dad wants me to get in the car seat now. And, you know, it's that basic. It's that basic that we uh, long ago in our childhoods, we didn't feel any power. And the only thing that we thought we could get away with was no. And we're lucky if we could get away with no, because in some families and in other generations, the word no was met with a slap, if not worse. Exactly, exactly. You know, I want to segue back to something you said a minute ago. There there are are problems. There are so many problems, but there are always problems. Somebody recently was telling me that in, I think it's the Buddhist tradition, that they believe that you will always have 86 problems. (laughs) And you can solve this 25 or that 46 but you will still always have 86 problems. And I love, <laughs> I, that really helped me. And I, I think that's the same kind of philosophical thing that you're discussing right now when there, you know, there, of course there are problems and we'll always have problems. If we could get that through our heads, it's like, it's how do we deal with the problems that we yeah. have rather yeah. than trying to pretend like the president's going to get rid of them. Yeah. There's something I'd like to add to this, and that is uh, going beyond, even when we pass the no stage of, of our resistance, there's also the stage of, I got to win. I got to be one up. I got to get a gotcha. And so a lot of times when I'm reading the news, if I read about, oh, there was a town hall, and oh, these, these demonstrators were able to uh, override the political representative for, in favor of the position that I like, my ego would jump in and say, gotcha. We won that one, you know? Yeah. And, and I have to confess, you know, I'd rather not go there. And I'm trying to cultivate, you know, being in the oneness with everybody and, 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 and having a dialogue. But there's that tendency to want to be one up. And uh, yes. that's still there. Yes, that, that, that is totally ego. And what I would like to, to also mention is that those of us who are more of what we call liberal or progressive bent um, may be happy when we see that the EPA is getting strengthened and are terrified when the EPA is being essentially, uh, um, what's the word for it? It's, uh, it's not disemboweled. Eviscer- eviscerated. Eviscerated, yes. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're using a more polite term than I was actually thinking of the one that has to do with the male genitals. But, <laughs> emasculated or? Emasculated, uh. yes. Uh but anyway, for the people who have been suffering in rural areas, in people who have not uh, had jobs, the people who were ignored by the, quote, progressive, and I don't consider it the progressive revolution. I don't happen to have thought that Obama was all that progressive, honestly. Um, but, you know, for those people who were sitting there watching their lives kind of go down the drain and their health and their money and all of that, they were feeling the same kind of upset as, let's say, the uh, Hispanic immigrants are feeling now, feeling threatened. And it's the same thing. But, but uh, w- why weren't we talking about them then? And I mean, some of us were talking about that income inequality and what about the problems. But see, it's like, oh, they are the other. So now the other becomes the other to the other. But here's here's the problem then that it's, you know, part of the, um, the pendulum swing comes from the egoic no. 
And part of it comes from the egoic lack of empathy and compassion, that we are always focused on ourselves. Well, how are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing? And, um, gee, that's too bad about those guys over there, but it's not impacting me uh, the same way as my problems are. So all of a sudden you have people who have felt safe or safer in the past suddenly feeling really threatened, but all the people who were feeling threatened in the past are now feeling safer. Now, I don't actually think that the uh, Trump uh, approach is going to work even for the people who support him. But that isn't the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is that it's, you know, it's a pair of glasses. It's our perspective. It's who are we caring about and who are we listening to? You know, the rural poor have not had much of a voice. And and the people who are, quote, liberals, uh, some of whom are living in very comfortable circumstances, and I have to say that right now I'm one of them. I am comfortable. Now, that could change like overnight. Uh, we're, we're not the kind of people who have money in the bank. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, it right. could change overnight. And I have been extremely poor in my life. I know exactly what that's like. And I don't mean like for a summer when I was in college. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean really year after year after year after year after year, extreme poverty, uh, disability, and so on. And by the grace of God, I don't go there right now. But I could if you know very easily. And um, so I know what that feels like. There's a lot of people who are in a position of somewhat comfort who can be upset about the condition of Muslims or the the, the Native Americans or the undocumented, but they're not worrying about all those white working class people. And I've seen this for how many years? 50 years in politics. I've seen this. Same thing. And um, so, so that, you know, we can afford to be very noble because we don't feel like, oh, our lives are at stake. And this is so self-defeating because we're not really looking at the whole. We're not looking at everything and everybody. We're not looking at the fear of the people who are become white nationalists. Like, what's driving this? And we, in the inner revolution, we want to have that conversation, but it's really difficult to reach across because you it's hard to find people, quote, on the other side who are willing to have a conversation with us. But before we get to that, I want to go back to, you know, revolution. So I've been talking about some of the reasons that we are going back and forth because we're, you know, we're in the gotcha game, as James said. And we're not paying attention to all the people. You know, they used to call them the silent minority, right? And um, I, I'm not saying that that the silent minority is any better. Because how many of those people are standing up and upset because Muslims are being attacked? You see what I'm saying? It's all of us. It's our lack of true understanding, compassion, and oneness that is the setup that creates this going back and forth in partisanship. And uh, in addition to the egoic thrill of being in the fight, of dealing with our sense of powerless by fighting and 
having the illusion for that moment that we are going to win. It reminds me of daredevils. I can't even imagine being a daredevil. (laughs) But, you know, you have this moment of thrill where you think that you're God, you know, where you've overcome uh, gravity. As you right, fly until you break all your, until you break every bone in your body. Exactly, exactly. But you have that moment, and you aren't thinking about the long-term problems, and you're not thinking about the consequences of what you're doing. And there was so little thought about the consequences, even though there were some voices in the wilderness, wilderness that said, you know, NAFTA needs to be examined because what is going to be done for the people, the workers who are going to lose their jobs. And by the way, the irony is that a lot of the proposals of the Trump administration are going to, you know, America first. Well, wait till you go to Walmart and your TV costs three times more than it did last week. Yep. Then there'll be the pendulum swing, like you said. Exactly. The people in the rural areas who depend on Walmart, you know, for their televisions are going to discover that the prices are going to go up. So it's all a big illusion unless we change the foundation of our society into a much more egalitarian universe where everybody's needs are being taken into account. But I did, before we go into that, I did want to go back to the what you were talking about, Helen, is about on the inside. You know, and I thought about, this morning I thought about revolution and how we have a life which feels fairly safe to us. You know, you get up in the morning, you know that somebody will have filled in, you hope that someone will have filled in the potholes in the street if you live in a city, or you know they won't if you live in the country. <laughs> and so you know what to expect. You know, you you go out, uh, there are street lights. Uh, you have Albertsons, uh, you know, somewhere in the vicinity. You know where you're going to get your milk. You know that the post office is going to be there. And so much of what we take for granted is the what is habitual. But now what happens when you have a revolution or just the thought of it is like, oh, my God, does that mean that Albertsons won't be there anymore? It'll be taken over by the uh, workers of, uh, you know, the uh, (laughs) the workers, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? And, you know, is everybody going to be on strike? And how are we going to live? And, you know, how are we going to manage? And all the things that we think we need, uh, you know, we're going through this nonsense because we just moved and we think we need all these things. Like we have to have a TV, right? And um, so now we have to buy one. It means we have to shop. It means I have to actually look and see what TVs are like these days. And then I have the online sources, so I'm, I count on Amazon or Best Buy or some somewhere else to, um, you know, to give me the information. And supposing all of that was gone, you know, it's so scary. Actually, I never think about this myself, uh, but it's so scary to think about a complete disruption. And I think that's what people are afraid of. I completely agree. On every time there's a change of administration, people are terrified of the what they perceive as being the complete demolition of all their security and oh, everything yes. and everything they mean, rely if, on. I mean, if we actually had a revolution, what would that in fact look like? 
You see, that's the point I'm making. Our fear of we need a revolution to turn everything over. Right, right. But we're afraid it's going to end up looking like when Lenin took over. Or it's going to be you chaos. Know, and exactly. And, you know, people, you're going to have 10 families take over your home. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, if and, we have a more egalitarian society, does that mean that I'm going to be pushed into the bedroom? You know, I can really understand that. It, I so, can too. So many white people were afraid of affirmative action because they were afraid of the consequences to their daily lives. I, I completely, I completely can understand that also. And yet, I remember, was it Josh Hoxie that was a a guest of yours on the radio show that said that there is enough wealth in the world that if it were distributed to every single person, they would have a $200,000 a year income? Yes. I mean, that... (laughs) You know, it's like we think of a revolution yes. as something that is going to drag us through the hell of poverty. And we never even think that equalizing all the wealth would have – everyone could have a wonderful life. Yeah. Yes. Everyone that, could buy yes. a TV when they have to have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. And, uh, and beyond that – you know, just the, what would it look like? You know, are the workers going to own everything? Uh, who's going to be uh, cleaning your house? Uh, you know, on some level, you know, we're wondering what the disruption of our lives would be like. See, and I don't ever think about that, because, but that's because I'm stupid. I, I never think about the disruption. I only think about the goal. It's like I what I think about is what we are doing is not working. And one more point before we leave this point about the inner revolution. If, when we're revolutioning ourselves, revolutionizing ourselves, it's the same thing. If we're afraid that everything would be unfamiliar, that we wouldn't know that things would be out of control, well, we have the same fear of our own inner changes and the inner changes of the people around us. Let's say uh, my husband has been uh, struggling um, with self-esteem and suddenly it's you know he revolutionizes himself and, and he starts feeling cocky. Well, is he going to go after some younger woman? Right. You, you know what I mean? It's like yeah, Absolutely. Well, so I'm afraid. I don't know what I'm going to be like. You know, am I going to be like out of control? Is he going to be out of control? Are my children going to come home with blue hair, except they already do? Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, uh, so whether it's something internal within us, how am I going to function internally if I stop being dominated by my ego? How will I know what to do? How will I know what's important? How will I be able to gauge my own behavior if I'm not dominated by convention, traditional thinking, and ego? Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, isn't that the core of it? It is. That is so the core of it, that we are dominated by our egos and at convention and so forth. And it, it without it, what would we be guided by, Beth? Would you tell us more <laughs> about that? Tell us a little about that. I didn't say I was going to answer questions. I only said that I was going to talk about this. Okay. Well, what we would be, well, th- this is what I believe. You know, who knows, right? I haven't seen it yet. But right. uh, 
What I believe is that we would be guided by the highest good of all and that that would include us. I really actually believe that. I believe that if we stop being so darned ego. Okay, here, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say you've got a handyman working for you. Of course, this kind of thing is on my mind because we just moved, right? (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, when you're in your 70s, you don't even pretend anymore that you can do everything yourself. Although some people still can. Hey, I'm not insulting you guys who can still do everything. But for the rest of us humans... So you've got a handyman, and and you and he said that your uh, fi- you know this thing was going to be fixed by noon on Tuesday, and it's now three o'clock on Wednesday, right? And of course, it's not done yet. Now, if you're totally dominated by ego, all you're going to do is harass the guy, right? When is it going to get done? When is it going to get done? You know, or why isn't it done? Or it's like that, right? I mean, doesn't that sound very normal? Very. So, but okay, so now if we are going to be guided by the highest good of all, which includes us, we go over to the guy and we say, what's going on? Um, what is happening? What's causing the delay? And when do you think this might get done? Or even one step further, what do you need in order to complete this job? So let's say he's, you're looking at him and he's sneaking off to eat something. <laughs> you know, and you're saying, when is it going to get done? He's afraid to go have lunch, right? And yet, if you were smart, you'd realize that what he needs is to eat because he's all stressed out because he knows he's late. So he needs to breathe. He needs to take care of himself. Uh, he needs to stop feeling guilty. He needs to be accountable. All the stuff about the inner revolution, accountability, oneness, mutual support, right? So he says, okay, I'm really sorry, but uh, my truck broke down. My truck broke down because I don't have any money. I don't have any money because I'm dysfunctional and I'm late on all my jobs, right? So you look at him and screaming at him, either psychically or verbally, to say, what are you going to get done? Isn't going to make him more functional. Isn't going to make his truck work, (laughs) isn't going to put the money in his pocket that he needs in order to fix it. So you wake up and say, oh, my God, this guy is struggling. And this is causing him pain. And he's in stress. And he's really anxious. And he is also all tied up in knots and doesn't know how to handle the situation because he knows that he's disappointed you. So then you talk to him, you know, and you, you know, either this isn't the right person to work with you or for you, or you recognize that this is a guy whose truck is going to break down. And you say, you know, why don't you go to lunch? And I'll see you later. And then you have to say, well, I, th- I thought I really, 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 really needed this. But do I really, really, really need this right now? And if right. you really, 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 really need this, and if you're living in a mutually supportive world, you sit down and you talk to him and say, you know, I, I get this. I understand this, you know, what you're going through. But um, I really, really, really need this. What can we do? What can I, is there something temporary that we can hook up or whatever? I mean, what I'm talking about is so obvious, isn't it? Yes, it's so obvious. I mean, starting with, feeling our oneness 
Yes. And moving from there to, you know, he is accountable. He said he was going to do it, but, you know, there. then we have to we have to find out the circumstances, just like you said, and move into mutual support. You know, what is really for the highest good? If you really, 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 really need it, and he cannot do it, then it's for his highest good to let you hire someone else. That's so right. that he doesn't feel the horrible feeling of not being able to provide what you really, really need. That's right. And if he if and if there's no one else to hire and he really can't do it, then you have one of the 86 problems. That's yeah. right. <laughs> hey Beth, I have another question here if I may. Sure. Sure. Uh, uh, how do you apply this on a national level when different regions have different priorities, different self-interest, this sort of thing? You know, for example, uh the Rust Belt uh have have a lot of workers who need jobs and they want to work in coal mines or whatever because that's what they've always done. And uh, uh, and, and then there's the aspect of uh, other things, uh, consumers in, on the East Coast or the West Coast or wherever uh, loving to have the cheap goods, and, uh, and the, but, the, but if the environmental protections go in and are applied, then everything becomes more expensive. Uh, how do you apply that on a national level? Like, do you, Does Congress come together and and they try to uh, ask what's for the highest good of all, and they all try to tune in. And even though they have constituencies that have different priorities, well, you know, it's it's, it's a great question, uh, James. And I would love to see Congress coming together in prayer <laughs> and saying uh, what's for the highest good of all. And when I say prayer, I don't necessarily mean that you need to have a God. It's a prayerful attitude, you know, of humility, of trying to find solutions by coming together. But let's just take a look at the example. If you have somebody who's looking for who wants to work in a coal mine, you're 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 kidding yourself. He, that person doesn't want to work in a coal mine. That person wants a job that pays decent money. It does not. I mean, how many people really want black lung disease? And there is no clean, 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 clean coal. So the real issue is to get beyond what we see is on a superficial level and say, well, what do these folks really need? They need opportunities. They need hope. They need money. They need, you know, jobs for money. They need self-esteem and so on. Now, do we really need cheap goods? I mean, isn't that an interesting question? Do We had um, Andrew Morgan was on, right, who, who did the true cost, who showed the cost right. of the cheap clothing is pollution and decimation of human beings. And do we really need all of that clothes? So let's look at these things. Do we really need to buy new stuff all the time? You know, what stuff do we need to buy new? What stuff do we not need to buy? So if it's like bringing your consciousness into all of it. So it's people don't necessarily need cheap goods. People need good goods. People need things that last, things that work well so they don't have to replace them in five minutes. People need enough income in order to buy those goods. If the people in the Rust Belt or in the you know, Appalachia, for example, do not have the money to buy the goods, it doesn't matter how cheap they are. So if you're in a, let's say you're living in Silicon Valley and you're making a good living on the... Um, you know, the dot-com stuff, uh, technology, and nobody has the means to buy the technology 
you're not going to stay in business very long. You see, there are no regional interests. All interests are the same. They're all human interests. We all have needs. We all need to understand what our true needs are. We need to go towards those true needs. And then we need to understand that everyone else needs has those needs as well. But if we are looking at it from a regional perspective, then we're actually in our minds, we've already separated people as though they were really different. Do you think that the, that uh, people in uh, you know coal mining areas need pollution in their streams any more than the people of Flint need lead in the water? No. Right. No. See, that's the way that capitalism and our so-called democracy, which is not really democratic, has us set up. We're assuming that we don't have the same interests. We are all pitted against one another, and we're all battling it out. So we end up fighting it out and compromising. You want to know why these, you know, our budget is so ridiculous? It's because everybody is fighting for a piece of the pie. And we're not able or willing to look at it honestly and say, okay, do we really need more nuclear weapons? <laughs> As has been proposed. Okay, we really right. need that, right? So if we don't need that, all right, well, what about the people who are going to lose their jobs if you cut the defense budget and said, well, what about finding other kinds of employment? See, it's it's just so dumb. It's It's so dumb to think that we should be fighting over pork instead of all coming together for the feast of what we can co-create together. Do you really believe that it is good for business for their workers to lose their health care? No. Of course not. It's complete nonsense. And then the hospitals are going to have to go back to having all kinds of people coming into the emergency room, which is what I used to do. Go from what I lived in New York City. There were so many emergency rooms. I could go from one to another. That was you know, my health care. You know, I, I never paid the bill. I heard today that part of what they, the Republicans are going to recommend is a personal savings account for your health care uh, up to $6,700 for a family. And, you know, of course, they brought up the, the, the Democrats brought up the point, who has that kind of money? Right. You know, would would you have benefited from having a kidding? saving? Yeah, exactly. And how far would it have gone? So, uh, it, you know, our assumption that we have different interests sets us up against one another. And in the inner revolution, we begin to realize that everything we think just about everything we think, uh, that our approach, our collective approach, I'm not talking about you as an individual. It's like that our collective approach is wrong. It's based on the assumption of separation instead of being based on the assumption of oneness. It's like we've been talking about immigration. Well, a lot of people wouldn't have come to the United States if we had not been devouring drugs uh, the way we have and completely destroyed the Central American societies where so people are running away from the, the, the gangs that are caused by the drugs. And uh, so there's a oneness right there. There is no separation between the plight of that, uh, you know, Salvadoran and or Colombian and uh, and the, the person in North America who's using the drugs because they can't stand their life either. I mean, you know, 
why do we use drugs? What's what's going on here? If you know, if money would make you happy, we really should all be you know flying high. If you compare the standard of living we have today over what the standard of living was two or three hundred years ago, I mean, come on, guys, you know. Uh, so obviously that the money alone is not the answer. It, the security, the family, the feeling of belonging, that's all really important. So we have to look at everything holistically. And when you look again at immigration, you say, well, the Mexican people need jobs in Mexico, don't they? What You're going to solve the immigration problem by putting up a wall and making sure that the Mexican workers don't have jobs in Mexico. So they'll actually have to come here. You, you know what I'm saying? There's no thought. It's stupid. <laughs> as, as is so much of our human behavior, mine included. <laughs> yes, me too. Well, it looks like we got a caller and we didn't even invite them. So, <laughs> I, invited, the way, we, I invited them. By the way, shouldn't we put out the phone number for people? Sure. We we do. It's just that we've been having such a good time. I completely forgot this was a call-in show. Yeah, why, so why, why don't we you... put that number out now, and then okay. uh, and then we'll go time. to our caller. Anybody else who would like to call in, our phone number is eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. That's eight sixty six four seventy two fifty seven eighty eight. Okay. Now, if we will allow our caller to speak, it is Rose <laughs> and Ramona. Hi, Beth, James, and Helen. Nice conversation, I must agree. I love the uh, info and the enthusiasm. I was thinking about how there might be maybe some people who would be interested in shifting away from their ego domination and operating from the oneness, but, you know, some of the ways that you've given and uh, are very valuable to know, like, the how, you know, how do I change? I don't even know how to change, so... One of the things I've heard about is the potluck revolution, and um, I'd just like to hear a little bit more about that from you. Oh, I love your question. And in fact, gonna... Rose, you, you have reminded me that we have an inner revolutionary handbook. You want to know how to make the revolution, go to theinnerrevolution.org, sign up for our newsletter. You can always drop out later. And you will get a free download of that book. It's also on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's in soft cover. I mean, it, it, there's no excuse. <laughs> you That's can correct. get this book. And this book really goes into the inner revolution on a much deeper level than what we're talking. Because today I'm trying to talk about the difference between resistance and revolution and the why of it. Uh, and it's a very short handbook, but it really gives you a step-by-step guidance of how to start changing from the inside so that we can change everything from the outside. But specifically about your question, well, I love that question, is we started calling it the potluck revolution because the concept behind it is you you bring what you have and you take what you need. And that is the essence of, of the potluck. See, our uh, very smart people who have had a lot of control over our world and our society have tried to scare us off of the ideas of socialism or communism by making it all sound like, oh, it's going to be Stalin and Lenin and, you know, oh, communists and, blah, 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 you know, scare the shit out of us, Ooh, scare the pants off us. And... Um, what actually the potluck revolution is 
so is communism. Communism says from each according to her ability to each and uh, to each according to his needs. And so you see, you give what you've got and you get what you need. That's the idea. That is the essence of communism as defined by Karl Marx, by the way, who lived many years before Lenin did. Um, and it does not have anything to do with the Soviet Union. But anyway, <laughs> and what Marx was doing is he was watching what the workers were doing. There was the Paris Commune. So he was watching. There were a lot of revolution in the air in the 19th century in Europe and Germany and France and so on. So he was looking at the Paris Commune and he said, you know, what are they really advocating for? And so he was very inspired by the working class. But the working class, you know, people really get it. You know how it is when you're in a poor community or if you're doing barn raising in if you're in a rural area, people come together. James and I live in a small town rural area. I mean, we're talking small, right? Everybody knows everybody. You've got to be a little bit different. You can't burn everybody and think that there'll be 25 more people there. You know, if <laughs> which means that people are incentivized to treat each other better. And it is unbelievable how See, we're all in a kind of a remote area. It's it's a long drive to get anywhere where you're going to get your needs met. So people kind of bond together and they help each other. This is great. This is America. This is the essence of who we are. And the potluck is American. I'm not saying it's only American. I'm just saying it's very American. It's like you bring what you've got. So, you know, some if you know, if I, if I had the money and I knew that I could afford to pay for the turkey or some, or, or some other person and I could pay for the turkey, I bought the turkey. If somebody else can only afford the beans or the macaroni, fine, that's what they brought or they brought the napkins. Uh, so, you know, and we've done this. We've all had this experience. We know that on that level, it works. Well, what makes us think that it wouldn't work on a grander scale. It's because when you come to a potluck, you're assuming the connection. You're assuming that we're all here for the same purpose, which is to celebrate Maggie's birthday or Joanna's uh, you know, graduation or John's getting his driver's license. And uh, you know, whatever it is, we're we're celebrating together. We have a, a similar intention, and we all really just want to have a good time. So we can do this. It's the mentality that we have that says, "No, we cannot do this." We've already proven that we can. There are cooperatives. There are societies that are based on this kind of thinking that are working. The Scandinavian countries are a, a lot ahead of us, and. You know, let's stop using the word communism or socialism. We are calling this the potluck revolution. but And it's all just an expression of the inner revolution where we believe in oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And, and don't we see that in happy families, in, oh. in partnerships at home? You know, isn't that what we're really seeing is you bring what you can and you take what you need. That, that is a functioning family for the few families that use that system, <laughs> it, you know. But if you know people, if you know married couples or if you know families that do use that system, you know that personally that they are happier. 
Absolutely. In fact, when you have, by the way, uh, I didn't want to discourage anybody from calling. So uh, I'll wake uh, another point and then I'd like James to reiterate the phone number. Um, when you're on a team, people love being on a team. Unfortunately, most teams have to be set up against other teams, right? Is our team against their team. So there's a lot of competition. But in fact, we do know that we love being on a team, that we love feeling the power of one another as our power. When we're together playing, you know, if the orchestra is all in harmony under the director of the, you know, of the conductor, and everybody knows their part and is doing their part, then we have beautiful music. It's the same over and over and over where human beings cooperate in a spirit of love then we have what we need and we don't need all the stuff we think we need and we get what we do need. There's more meaning to life. We don't have to buy the 25th T-shirt. So it looks like we have another caller now, which is Irene from San Diego. The um, challenge that I am facing, because I believe in everything you're talking about, but uh, I am living with a lot of uh, older liberals who uh, seem to be hooked on the heroine of announcing the next terrible thing that the present administration has uh, decided to do. And yes. don't really seem to want to bring the conversation back to, well, what can we do? That's positive rather than um, sort of get into the excitement of I have the latest scandal. Oh, my God. And didn't we see this during the electoral season? It was kind of nauseating. And it's happening right now. I mean, the Democrats are um, sharpening their weapons uh, to go into battle because suddenly they're feeling like, you know, there is a lot of support. But see, this is never going to make the change that we want because as we've been talking about, it's only going to start the pendulum swing swing the other way. So the question I think, you know, that you're raising, of course, is how do you operate in that context? And all you can do, Irene, is bring the inner revolution all the time. You just, you know, when you're in this conversation, uh, is you say, and... Are you not realizing that that's very partisan? Why do you? What do you think is uh, would be the feelings of? Let's say somebody assassinated Trump. Aside from the fact that Mike Pence would then be president, which would not be a really good thing either. Uh, you know, right. how do you think the people who voted for Trump and who are trusting Trump and are hoping for the you know the, hoping for a bit of life via Trump? How do you think they would feel? It's like, you know, we have to go back to, and why do you think people have supported this? And what are you thinking? So, you know, I have found that pretty much everywhere that I go, when I talk about the inner revolution, and I say, you know, this is what we really need, that we can, I mean, Christians and uh, atheists, uh, uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats, it, you know, there, there is something in our hearts that calls to us to change the way that human beings treat one another, the inner revolution, which will then find expression externally. 
But if you're hooked into it, then you will not find those opportunities. You'll find yourself, on the other hand, carried by the current of the consciousness of the people that you're surrounded by. Yeah. So if you're finding yourself, for example, if you're going to a lot of meetings of Democrats, are you going to an equal number of meetings of Republicans? Well, that's interesting. And and I went to a meeting of Democrats and suggested that we invite, you know, there's a Democratic club and a Republican club in each um, uh, each community. Why don't we invite some of the people from the Republican club and see what we have in common? And um, it was not uh, well received. Okay, but Irene... You're, you're calling. Yeah. You're the inner revolutionary. They aren't. They haven't made that commitment. I'm asking you, why are you going to the Democratic Club instead of the Republican Club? Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. <laughs> that's and I know a very exactly good point. why. Because you feel safer there. Because you know yeah. you're going to be surrounded by people who at least agree with you that uh, children shouldn't be afraid that their parents are going to be deported that day. I mean, God knows, you know, it doesn't yeah. take much to figure that out, right? So you're looking yeah. for safety. I can understand that. But see, yeah. I, I don't want that. I, I mean, I, you know, if you really want to do something different, do something different. Don't wait for someone else to do something different. Go in and be the Democrat who, go, if you're a Democrat. But even more, Irene, why don't you stop identifying as a Democrat? Very good. Very good. You know, I I want the safety. Uh, you know, uh, if that's a rhetorical question, you know, it, it's good. I will change. But if it's a real question, why am I defending as a Democrat? It's because I want the safety of uh, people who I know think the same way I do. Now, I do have that because I'm part of the innerrevolution.org, but not where I'm living. No, but see, what I'm saying is you're part of the innerrevolution.org, but you still identify as a Democrat. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I can hear it in what you just been sharing why don't we invite the republicans why don't we invite them so when you're going into those meetings you're not going in with your consciousness in the inner revolution you're going in as a democrat now i'm not telling people that they aren't allowed to be democrats or they're not allowed to be republicans or you know of course not i mean but if you're actually identifying as an inner revolutionary and that that is your identification then why are you uh, actually still identifying as a democrat so there's something in you that is still resisting making that transition. And yes, there is like, okay, this is the safe thing. But is it? See, I was in the, you know, I've been in the, you know, in the movement. I was in the movement for many, many years. And I did not find that I just, that I agreed with everything that the people that I was supposed to agree with said. I didn't agree with yeah. them. And I didn't, and I didn't feel really supported by the approach because, believe it or not, you know, 50 years ago, I thought that what we should be doing is we needed to be organizing a, across 
class lines. Now, now I would say go beyond that and, uh, you know, organize around along human lines. But, uh, you know, I, I could see the problems of doing things in terms of race, for example, if you're not taking into consideration the uh, white working class people, then you're not doing yeah, your job yeah. as a revolutionary. And it's the same yeah, thing if, yeah. if I was part of the women's movement and I wasn't thinking about the needs of the men and their struggles and how damaging the system is to them, then I'm not being an interrevolutionary and I'm, I'm not being any kind of an interrevolutionary because uh, we have to find out what unites us what the pain is, and the pain is the ego and the way that we approach one, or, uh, one another and ourselves. And that goes across all lines, class, race, gender. So thanks for the call, Irene. Um, we're going to be getting, actually, we're getting close to the end of our show, believe it or not. But I'm glad that you raised that because we, isn't it amazing how we can still hang on to these old identities it's like, oh, I'm still a, you know, St. Mary's uh, uh, high school girl. <laughs> so here we are. Helen, we've got three minutes to go. Um, I we'll know. Need minutes, we'll need two minutes to announce next week's show. Yeah. So where did it go? I don't know where it went, but, I, but, I, but you really, you know, that last challenge to give up identifying as a, as a Democrat or Republican that really struck me that, again, the depth of the inner revolution is that you have to give up all your old ideas, not just the ones that are convenient. Yes. You have to give up all your old ideas and reevaluate everything that you believe, everything that you think, exactly. everything, everything that you do. It's all got to be put on the table. Right. Yeah, a, a Republican might actually have a good idea from time to time or have a point. Maybe just have a point, even if they haven't got the right solution. <laughs> exactly. You know, this reminds me of an upcoming event that we are having at the San Diego Church of the Brethren called Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation, a giant step toward the unity that we so desperately need. I don't know if it says so desperately need, but <laughs> um, and that is bringing together both sides, quote unquote, of the issue so that we can really listen and yes. discuss yes. what we do believe in common and you know are pro-life people really in in, in de defense of life or is it really something else and so on and so forth and, and, and it's what another is really example motivating and what is really motivating people to take their positions instead of uh, justifying it so let's have uh, James tell us what's happening next week because I think that's your show it yes, is indeed. my show okay great next week uh, our topic is going to be uh, having a guest uh, of Reverend Rita Nakashima Brock with our host, Helen Helix, in yeah. an eye-opening and sometimes shocking discussion about the very real but often unseen cost of war, moral injury to soldiers and their families. Find out what is moral injury and how do we help those who are suffering its effects. Why is it that while soldiers make up only 7% of our population, they are responsible for 20% of the suicides in the United States? Join us as Reverend Brock exposes the painful reality of a deep and wrenching injury that cannot be seen, the injury to the soul when a soldier is asked to do things that are contrary to his moral convictions. 
While PTSD treatment helps many military personnel heal and return to normal lives, there is a significant number who are not healed by this support. We will explore why that is and whether it has anything to do with the type of military engagement and the country's perception of the battle being fought. And what effect does all this have on the families? How do they feel about their loved ones being involved in battle and possibly killing other humans, sometimes civilians and children? Join us as we explore the true cost of war and how it is going to take an inner revolution for us to see war differently and to treat our returning soldiers with the care they need. So call in with your questions and join us. A final word? Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad that Helen brought up the abortion conversation because that is going to be available uh, in person in the San Diego area, but online anywhere. And it's the same thing. I mean, let's get real about real human beings with real problems, why we have taken the positions we are, and let's stop arguing about the end, how what our policy should be, and get together from the heart and start to understand one another. That in itself would be a revolution. Thank An you so much. An inner revolution. Inner yes. Revolution. Yes. The handbook for the inner revolution. Thank you so much, Helen. I want to thank you so much for keeping this radio show going. Thank you for being our guide. <laughs> thank you. Love you. I love you too. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.